ask yourself this question. If it was your brother, what would you do for him? Every one of us has atherosclerotic disease. I think from the day you're born, you have clean coronaries, and every day you live, you are developing atherosclerosis. What jury is possibly going to say you are culpable and uh, you should be punished when you did the right thing? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and aficionados of lawsuits everywhere, Rick and I, starting out February of 2019. Rick, I don't know whether you realize or not, this is our 13th year of of being in the business. And uh, why we don't have more listeners, I'm not sure. But uh, for those who who listen conscientiously, I think they're still getting some really good stuff, particularly today, because we have a great guest. It's Amal Matu, who is probably as famous a name as there is in emergency medicine these days. Amal's uh, chair at the University of Maryland and has been a great contributor to uh, ASAP and other emergency medicine organizations across the country. Amal, let me welcome you. It's great to have you with us. Well, thanks so much. Just uh, one correction, I'm vice chair, which means I get to play free safety. I don't have any responsibility. God forbid I ever become chair, the place would go bankrupt in about 10 minutes or so. so. <laughs> You know, well, good. I mean, it's very important these days with that we have have somebody who's in charge of vice. You know, <laughs> it's kind of neat when that you're in the position of uh, the the departmental sage. You don't have to do anything but be smart and uh, and uh, don't have to kind of fill in any time sheets on anybody or supervise anybody or just just be the sage. Yeah, it's no, my- being sage is good. Yeah. It's my dream job. There's pretty much no paperwork involved. I just get to uh, help other people and pretend like I'm smart. Oh, my God. (laughs) If you could get two more of those jobs, uh, (laughs) I know a couple of guys who will take it. All right. Uh, No reason to delay. Why we have Amal on this month is that he has been one of our most uh, consistent listeners. He uses a lot of this stuff with his residents. And Amal has brought up a question that he wants us to comment on. And uh, since we got you right here, Amal, you go ahead and ask us the question. Sure, sure. Thanks so much. So just a little background. We were in our usual Wednesday conference and having a discussion about some med mal issues, including reverse uh, or refusal of care. And the topic came up about what to do with intoxicated patients who are interested in in leaving. Now, we're not talking about the person who just has alcohol on board, but they're at their baseline. But somebody who truly is intoxicated and has impaired judgment, and I think we've all learned that if somebody has impaired judgment, you you need to keep them there. You can't let them leave because they're going to pose risk to society, pose risk to themselves, and it's our job to take care of them. But the question came up, regarding something that was in a recent Annals of Emergency Medicine article where they cited some case law from New York, which stated that if an intoxicated patient comes to the emergency department, essentially of their own recognizance, I guess, that they come in on their own, once they're treated, you can't prevent them from leaving. You have to hold them there. So for example, if an intoxicated patient comes in and says, I have a laceration on my leg, I want it fixed, you fix it, 
and then they're still intoxicated, impaired, but they say, I want to go now, then you can't force them to stay, uh, which really goes against what we've been traditionally taught in emergency medicine. And so I had emailed a question to you guys, and, and that's how this all came about. So yeah. what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, you know, I'm a, we've talked about the co- recent Kowalski case, Kowalski v. Uh, St. Francis Hospital, which was referenced, I believe, in this discussion. And the bottom line is, if you uh, believe they constitute at that moment a danger to self or others, uh, ask yourself this question. If it was your brother or your favorite Uncle Louie, what would you do for him? And I think the smart emergency doc, the ethical emergency doc would say, I'd find him, uh, find some way to keep him. I'd get him a lunch. I'd, I'd uh, send him to x-ray. Well, on that basis, he'd be gone for hours. Uh, you don't even have to take a picture, just send him to x-ray. But I, I think it's, I think it's casual and not correct to say if they show, show signs of impairment, slurred speech, trouble uh, walking, um, I don't want them driving when my kids are on the road. I don't want them uh, to step out and get hit by a bus. All of these cases we do have. So until there's a real database of this sort of thing, do what's right. I mean, I I don't see the advantage to anyone of putting someone dangerous to themselves or others out on the street. I just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't wash with me. If you get into the question of, well, you can't touch them, um, that's wrong. We have plenty of cases where they've said if they have abnormal mental status, they need to be touched. And we have plenty of cases where emergency docs have not restrained uh, and the patient has caused harm or damage in the department and uh, they got in trouble for it. Uh, They lost those malpractice cases. So until there's a better database on this, just do what's right. If you're feeling uncomfortable about it, uh, I I think that's the best rule ever taught me. If you're uncomfortable, you know, watch them again, examine them, do something else. But when you get that gut feeling, go with your gut. You know, I don't think that this is a a really uh, serious issue in that this was an aberrant ruling for sure. Uh, This was not a unanimous ruling. And basically, the New York Court of Appeals in the Kowalski case, in this five to two decision, said that the emergency physician did not owe to the patient to uh, did not owe a duty to the patient to confine the patient against his will, nor did the emergency physician have a duty to use the mental health statute to confine him as an immediate danger to himself. So basically, this said you could not do whatever you call it in your state to uh, voluntarily, uh, involuntarily uh, hold this person. This guy had a blood alcohol of 0.369. And I think that the only risk to you is that this is a a criminal case if you you, uh, restrain this person against his will in New York. And so what will happen is you'll get some community service as as you're fine. What jury is possibly going to say, uh, you are culpable and uh, you should be punished when you did the right 
did the right thing. I, I would not honestly lose any sleep over the Kowalski decision in New York. Yeah, no, I wouldn't either. And the bottom line is it's much more complex than that. He was there for, for a period of time. He wanted to be treated for his alcoholism. It was hours, actually, uh, that they re-examined him and talked to him. And re-exam, he was perfectly cogent. Now, I think the first mistake here was getting a blood alcohol level. I don't know how that changes your action or behavior. He smelled like alcohol. He looked like alcohol. It's rare that there's anybody that we make a different decision on. And all the papers say that is that is not a good measure of that person's intellectual capability. There are people who drink all the time, and I'm not going to mention anybody, uh, but <laughs> we we actually there are plenty of people who, when they drink and have elevated blood alcohol levels, have absolutely no impairment. There's other people get some hundred pound seventeen year old who's experimenting with alcohol and uh, two drinks, and they're under the table. They can't stand up anymore. So I don't think there's a uniform effect of alcohol on on the cerebral activity, number one. Secondly, if you're not going to do something with the number, why'd you get the number? I have I have no idea why. Amo, what do you think the uh, issues were uh, at your residency in terms of this this uh, paper? Well, it was we didn't worry too much about it because we we are not in New York. But there are people from New York and and those who might be going back to New York were just a bit confused about whether they need to do something different. Now, it sounds like based on what you all are saying, that there are certain details that were left out of that annals paper yes. in in um, in relation to the case. But just that little brief snippet in the annals paper made it sound like in New York that if somebody comes in on their own, then you can't hold them, whereas if somebody's brought in by paramedics or police or someone, then then you can hold them. And it just makes things very confusing. So I, I like what you guys are saying, and, and I think it's a very rational, very reasonable, and do the best thing for the patient type of approach to this yeah, uh, I, scenario. I, I think in most jurisdictions, the law doesn't want to be involved in going after an emergency doc where it says, the patient uh, was slurring his speech, couldn't understand what I was saying, and I protected him from hurting himself. I mean, that's going to be a hard sell for that patient. Yeah, clearly, you're going to be writing the case up in your notes to defend the position that you're taking. You're going to write the notes so that you can discharge the patient, or you're going to write the notes so that you can hold the patient. Uh, this is by way of reference. This is from my an article in the uh, November 2017 issue of the Annals of Emergency Medicine by Catherine Marco, who uh, is well-known in emergency medicine circles. It's about refusal of emergency medicine treatment, case studies, and ethical foundations. She went through four cases. They all basically focus on determining capacity. Right, exactly. Capacity is everything. And uh, I was just reading for uh, grand rounds I have to give at the end of this uh, month I was reading an article three or four years ago where the attorney slash doctor said, if you think signing the against medical advice form gets you out of trouble, he he said, think again. 
And this is just what we've been teaching for the last 30 years. Because they scrawl their name, uh, it doesn't protect you. If, if the nurse's note says uh, that the patient is uh, staggering or has uh, nystagmus or whatever the nurse wants to write down, bottom line is because they scrawled their name, I know what every resident wants. What the resident wants is a thing that if they can barely put their hand on a piece of paper, we can kick them out the door. Bottom line is that's too simplistic. And this paper, uh, again, by the MDJD said, uh, that's exactly right. We have plenty of cases where they've scrawled their name and the uh, doctor was still in trouble. Um, why don't we have you here? And given the fact that you are Mr. Cardiology in emergency medicine, uh, we asked if we could, uh, if you could bring up some other issues that are, are been cogent in the last uh, six months since we last talked to you. Sure, that'd be great. Um, there is a, a number of actually cardiac and non-cardiac cases that I've been involved in that I, I would love to bounce off you guys. Uh, these cases are all resolved, and so I don't think there's a problem in talking about them. But um, actually, since we were just talking about refusal of care, let me ask you another point that does not have to do with emergency cardiology. You talked about the paper. Let, let me turn that around and just let you know there's a couple of cases where I've seen where patients were presumably discharged against medical advice, where the physician documented in their chart that they recommended that the patient stay. It's unclear how how much they tried to coerce the patient to stay, but they said that they wanted the patient to stay. The patient did not want to go. And so they kind of documented that the patient was discharged against medical advice and there was no form signed. And the patients ended up in, in these two cases, the patients were discharged, had bad outcomes. And what came back against them was you guys didn't have the patient sign a form. And if you had had the patient sign a form, then it probably would have emphasized how serious you are to the patient that you really wanted them to stay. And so the I, I don't think the contention was that all you need to do is sign a form, but the contention was that in addition to documenting, you should have taken it one step further and had them sign a form. In one case, they actually cited that it was hospital policy to have them sign the form. And both of those cases ended up having to be settled for six-figure amounts. So what, what are your thoughts about really mandating that in addition to good documentation, you do have them sign the form? Well, if you, if you can't get them to sign, you've got to remember a lot of these – this should not be a surprise to anyone listening. These are not only intoxicated, but personality disorders. Uh, and they, they, uh, they, if you talk to the families who are there, they've been jerks their entire life. It is surprising to you that they don't want to sign the form? Whenever they refuse to sign, I will say the form was offered uh, and we wanted them to sign. Uh, and he refused to sign. I mean, you realize I can't break their fingers and make them sign that paper. But sure. I'll tell you what, if they've got a family member, and half these people do, they've got somebody, I'll have the family member sign that they refuse to sign. Uh, 
Okay, this, it, this is just a little bit different. It wasn't that they refused to sign. It was that the form was not offered to them because the physicians thought that having them sign the form is um, uh, poses a confrontation that they didn't want to get involved in, signing well, the form. Yeah. Well, you get in, you know, we're in emergency medicine. Whenever they say, well, we certainly don't want confrontation, I'm sorry, you should have gone into dermatology or pediatrics. We are, by nature of what we do for a living, going to have differences of opinion. Uh, we're the only group of doctors who maybe 20, 25 percent of people are brought to us and they don't want to be there. That's that's an odd situation. But Amal, I think if, if you're having that situation, who do you want to save? Henry's law is the first person you save is yourself. And uh, I want to say that I've offered the piece of paper. I, 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 want to, I want to show as many good things on my side of the board as I possibly can. I gave them options. I, I was going to buy them lunch. I was going to do this or that. And if you do those sorts of things, I, I think the smart attorney can present that well enough to a jury that, that you would not be in trouble. But um, if the, the department has a form, I don't know a department that doesn't have a form. Uh, and the best form I ever saw, by the way, was the one done by a friend of ours. And, and uh, it, that form actually has a checkbox that said, I, you know, I showed them the form and they refused to sign it. Uh, I think that's reasonable. I, the, the problem, uh, Amal, is not just the patient. It's the patient's family, relatives, friends, that sort of thing. Were they involved? Did they hear the discussion? Again, if I'm having a, a dispute of some kind, I want the name of everybody who heard that discussion. His uncle, his brother, his sister, two nurses in the department. I'd have the nurses sign and put a note in that said, we tried to get him to stay. Um, that kind of stuff is pretty hard for the for the uh, plaintiff to win on in court. You know, I'd, I'd get him to sign the form, but... <clears throat> I would try to do it in a non-adversarial uh, way. You could always say, well, they make me do this. Yes. We, we have mm -hmm. no idea who they is, but they make me do this. <laughs> We're friends. I, I, you know, I don't want to antagonize you, but they make me do this. The other thing is, if in fact you feel uncomfortable as uh, people can, that this would be perceived as an adversarial kind of thing, I definitely would put down in the chart the same things that are fundamentally in the in the in the form that you told them the uh, the risks and risks of leaving the uh, treatment that you wanted to give the uh, uh, treat if you don't want that treatment we can offer you this treatment if you don't want this treatment we can offer you that treatment so that they know all the options those kinds of things are essentially what's on that form yeah. if you can say this is what I did then it, then you have in fact duplicated what's on that form and you are attesting to the fact that I told them these things and I certainly would agree Greg that Anytime somebody is leaving against medical advice, get an, get another person in the room who will support, in fact, what you did say. Yep, and I think that we take it too casually, particularly in training centers where they haven't seen, kids haven't seen 
the bad stuff that can happen yet. You know, they haven't been there long enough to, to know that lawsuits last five years. Uh, I, I, I threw out, I was got, received a letter this week that a case that I've had for 12 years has wow. now been settled. Uh, at some point in time, the children in a three-year residency don't get to see the badness. <laughs> they can come back and grab them by the butt. Uh, the form, by the way, the best I've ever seen is the one Jim Roberts did. And this goes through. If you fill out that form, I promise you, you will not get sued on against medical advice because it really does ask the right questions about why you're doing it one way or the other. Sure. And, and this thing about multiple people, there's a nurse, there's a tech, there's other human beings. They've heard you try and beg him to stay. They've heard you do this and this and this. I think that carries more weight than anything you put down. Why? Because they've got no skin in the game. They, they saw you try and be a reasonable, good person. And I think juries care about that sort of stuff. I sure. really do. Sure. Well, great advice. So one other theme that I've seen before I get onto the cardiac cases is probably right up your alley, Greg. Uh, in both of these cases, relatively young people in their 30s, maybe early 40s or so came in with just some vague symptoms, um, some numbness and tingling on the face and the lips, and maybe they had some unexplained nausea and vomiting and and then they use that fateful word, uh, a little bit of dizziness. Yes. And and it was blown off. Um, maybe just, you know what, when you don't know what it is, just call it dehydration. Give them some fluids. It goes away. And then the patients were discharged. And I'm sure you know what ended up yeah, happening. Of course. So, so posterior uh, stroke, which in both these cases had devastating complications. Um, and uh, one ended up with a craniotomy. The other ended up herniating and dying. And, um, you know, the tip offs there, you know, dizzy can mean something really bad until proven otherwise. And one of the things that other folks have taught me, you've taught me also, if somebody has unexplained vomiting, one of the things that you've got to think about is posterior circulation. Um, so do you want to do a, a one or two minute thing about that? Well, just to say this, that if they've done the great exam, and they've looked at the HINCE exam, the posterior fossa. Almost all those people have something. The joke is uh, people didn't do check the posterior fossa. Their finger to nose testing, their this, their eye movements, their this, that, another thing. It'd be the very unusual case that had those symptoms that didn't have some finding. The other thing is this, Amal, if if it's, it, what are you going to do for them at this moment in time? I mean, I suppose you can give them a, uh, an 81 milligram aspirin and send them home, but without a finding, I don't know anybody who's, wait, you're going to start TPA on somebody without a finding? Are you going to suggest, and, and you know, all the sucking and squeezing of, of clots in the head, um, works in the anterior fossa for certain people. Nobody's got a paper published that said they've gone into the small posterior fossa arteries and sucked out a clot. Now, someday 
we may have a, a device where the technology is good enough to do that. But we don't have that today. The posterior fossa is is one of those great areas in medicine that if you have that the treatment, I'd like to hear about it. You know, I'm a vasculopath. I'm going to die of a stroke probably. Bottom line here is I'd like that to know what to do. But what, what are they saying at your place these days, Amal? What what let's say you had somebody who you thought, well, maybe it's posterior fossa. What are they what are they going to do? What are they going to start them on? They just admit them to the hospital if they do for how long? Um I, I don't think this is a resolved area yet in my opinion, but that the physical exam and the history better be real good on that chart. If you're going to send them out, I got to think that these were big buck cases that were lost. Yeah, they, they, as you know, they tend to be much bigger bucks when the patient, uh, ironically, does not die. Uh, yes, and you know, if if they die, then you know they're big bucks. But when they have prolonged, um, you know, nursing home care, all that suffering and everything else that they throw in there ends up resulting in a lot more zeros on that check for sure. Well, there are right. these. Uh, articles that talk about how do we how good are emergency physicians in diagnosing peripheral vertigo, which is by far the most common. So it's kind of like this say peripheral vertigo, and you'll be right most of the time, even it, though it, you about ninety percent of the you don't time. have to even right. look at the patient and say that's the diagnosis. But the articles talk about uh, what's the threshold for getting an MRI? What uh, how do, how do we kind of investigate these cases? Are we getting en enough or not enough? And the most recent paper I, I saw said that we do surprisingly well, but the uh, this is another one of those, Greg, where the margin for error is really not, we, we, we're not allowed to miss these cases. And you're right, what is the therapeutic issue? Um, these cases, I'm sure both were very costly, even though you could bring up all the, all you want about what the therapeutic issue was. Uh, the jury's not going, the ER doctor sent him home with some kind of vague complaint of some, something that, uh, they are probably obviously should not have. And the truth is if we put them upstairs in a bed, then nobody's good. That's the way you're assured for nobody to see them for six hours <laughs> is admit them to the floor. Well, you know, I, I have to think that in these cases, um, most emergency physicians do not have a high level of confidence. Uh, because the peripheral signs are really not there. They wind up making up something that is tangentially plausible, like dehydration, when in fact there's no reason that a person was dehydrated kind of thing. And I think there's always this issue of these gray zone cases. And I know that neurologists are generally hard to find, but given the fact that the hospitals now are so interested in strokes and there's such an emphasis on early diagnosis that perhaps maybe when you're not sure, maybe you can get some help, maybe you can get it, maybe a neurologist will come down and check the patient or something to that effect, because it, it, this is dangerous business. You can't afford to be wrong here. Well, even, even if you are wrong, I point out that uh, they better have another batch of literature that none of the rest of us have seen as to what they're going to do for people with a problem in the posterior fossa. I mean, we haven't seen that data. That and, didn't help. That didn't help almost cases. Well, I I understand that. 
So I guess all I can say is uh, it's difficult area. If uncertain, you can get an opinion. Uh, Amal, are you a center of excellence for stroke, your hospital? We are a center of excellence for uh, dental care and <laughs> or lack of dental care. Um, we do have a stroke center. And to, you know, in relation to the point that you made, I, I honestly don't know what they can do for posterior circulation, TIAs or strokes. So I think you make a really great point. Um, we do have a stroke center. We have a very aggressive group of neurologists who, for the most part, I, I find are very reasonable and, and they're not throwing thrombolytics haphazardly at patients. Uh, they oftentimes, I've been pleasantly surprised at the number of times they find good reasons to not give lytics to patients. But in terms of posterior circulation, TIAs or strokes, I really don't know what, what they do or what they can do. Well, you know, I worked in a hospital. We were a center of excellence for drunken disorderly <laughs> and uh, almost nothing else. But we did a lot of it. We were good at it. And, uh, and everybody has to have a place in the medical chain. Let me just point out that a lot of, you can go to 10 different centers and ask for their treatment opinions on posterior faucet TAA, and you can get at least 10 different answers as what they're going to do, how long they're going to follow them, all that sort of thing. So I don't think, whenever there's this much confusion it's it's a gold mine for plaintiff's attorneys because they can always get somebody to testify we would have done x y or z sure um so uh let me talk just about it bring up a couple of other things that i've seen recently uh i'm still seeing and we talked about this before but i'm still seeing cases of patients that end up having acute coronary syndrome and and bad outcomes who are maybe not taken seriously, I don't know a better way of phrasing it, but not taken really seriously purely because of their age. So we've seen a, a handful of cases where patients are in their 20s or, or 30s without a lot of cardiac risk factors at the time of arrival. And I always emphasize the fact that when patients show up with their MI or PE, a lot of these patients maybe 20% have no known risk factors. And then after the diagnosis, they get worked up and then they discover the familial hyperlipidemia or the protein S deficiency or some, some risk factor that gets discovered afterwards. But there's still a lot of patients that are, are being somewhat discounted purely because of age. And I think it's important to just once again make the point there's no age limit under which we should not worry about ACS. It's, it's really very largely about the history and taking a good close look at the EKGs. In both of these cases, the EKGs were abnormal, um, not subtle, but, but clearly abnormal. And it just wasn't taken seriously because the patients were very young. And two of those patients actually turned out to be spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which I think is something that a lot of people in our specialty are not aware of. It's not in the board review books. It's not in the textbooks. We're, we're starting to learn more about it now in the general literature, but about 2% of all angiograms that are done for STEMI turn out to be spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And a lot of these patients are very young. Oftentimes they're young women who we have even less concern about because women are lower risk. They have no risk factors, and, and yet they have concerning histories that are just blown off because they're young. 
So I, I think people need to understand that there is an entity that's out there which can cause a full-blown MI even in somebody who's relatively young and doesn't have much risk factor. So you've got to focus on the HPI. And when the HPI and EKG are concerning, just forget the age, forget the risk factors, just bring them in for a workup. Amal, you may have uh, been making reference to a paper that we did in the abstracts a, a, a good while ago that looked at risk factors and did indicate that a substantial subset of myocardial infarction patients had no risk factors. It might have been 20 or 30% for sure. And the idea of putting down on the chart no risk factors, that in that one particular patient's case is largely irrelevant. Totally and, irrelevant. And, and if and it is going to be used as something to justify a position that uh, I don't have to take this patient as seriously, especially if they're younger. So, and plus the younger patients, they're the they're the time bombs because those are the ones who you know it's okay to miss an MI in a in a 90 year old, but it's not okay to miss an MI in a 35 year old in terms of productivity, ongoing heart failure, all of these kinds of downstream things. So we've all seen in our careers. MIs and and when you get into a room of doctors and you ask, well, what was the youngest one you saw that pop up this 25 and 32 and they all of these young numbers. So it's just a matter of time until you see one that just kind of scares the bejesus out of you. I had a great young neurologist who said to me, the only function of risk factors is for a family practitioner in making advice about lifestyle people in their office. He says, for the patient sitting in front of you at that moment in time, you have an N of one. You don't care whether their father smoked. None of that kind of stuff helps you uh, solve the problem in front of you. And I thought he expressed that the best. He says, yeah, if you're a family practitioner and there's somebody in your office that you want to give lifestyle advice to, that's fine. But he said, you can't send a patient home based on adding up risk factors, uh, particularly when an EKG says, uh, you, you know, uh, nonspecific ST segment change. I hate that phrase. Uh, it, it, the machine says it all the time, but whenever it says it, I always think of all those cases I went to court where the plaintiff's attorney said, doctor, that isn't normal, is it? Because otherwise it would say normal EKG, wouldn't it, doctor? And I'm sure, Amal, you're the guy to ask. Most of these do have some EKG abnormality. It's not like, you know, big ST segment changes, all that kind of stuff. But they have something on that piece of paper that you've got, that someday you're going to have to explain to somebody. Yes, uh, the... the the clear majority of these patients will have a concerning HPI and or a concerning EKG. So, we're, you know, I don't think any of us are, are saying that we should go overboard and just admit everybody who's young with any ounce of chest pain, but you do need to focus on doing a good HPI and you do need to really scrutinize that EKG. And, it, you know, if they have no risk factors and they've got a nothing history and a nothing EKG, then fine, I would send that person home. But you can't blow off a concerning EKG or blow off a concerning HPI just because of the patient's age. And, a, and you made a comment about women. Um, I, I'll tell you, in my experience, particularly in women above 60 who are having chest pain, 
the the vital sign which is usually most disturbing to me and we never take it correctly is respirations they they often don't talk about pain they say i'm a little short of breath well that's a common presenting symptom in my experience with women is starting to experience uh, uh, coronary type chest pain. I don't, I don't know what your experience is, but we, we've said, well, this group is at less risk. If they're at 10% risk over a huge population, then again, that says nothing about the person sitting in front of you. I'm, a, I'm curious about the cases that you mentioned, whether in fact the EKGs were read by the machines as um, abnormal. Uh, yes, I, as I recall, neither one was read as normal. One of them actually had signs of prior infarction, which you kind of look at and say, well, why, why does this, I don't know, why does this 30-year-old person have evidence of prior infarction, even though there's nothing acute looking on this thing? It's got evidence of prior infarction. It was clearly abnormal. And so you have to stop and say, well, that's not a normal EKG, uh, especially in a 30-year-old. And the other one had nonspecific uh, abnormalities and some subtle signs of early ischemia. But I, again, I, I, if it had been a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old, I'm, I'm sure more attention would have been paid to the EKG in both of those cases. In your experience uh, with these MI cases, is misreading or underappreciation of the EKG findings a recurring theme? I, I believe it is. I, I think there's there's a lot of cases where the EKG is misread. And in fact, in some of those cases, the presentation is is so subtle that you just wish that an EKG had never been obtained. It would have been easier to defend <laughs> right. if, there, if there was no EKG. But now you've got this EKG, which is very objective. I mean, with the history of present illness, that's subjective. You can argue about how reliable certain signs and symptoms are. But when you have an an, a clearly abnormal, objective piece of information sitting there. It's almost like having a positive troponin that you ignore. If, if you've got an EKG that's clearly ischemic and it's ignored, it, it's, it, you, can't, you can't get past that. The reason I bring that up is because maybe uh, 15 years ago when emergency physicians wanted to bill for EKGs, there was the issue of, well, were they capable of reading an EKG with any kind of uh, level of uh, quality. And at that time, the American Heart Association uh, came out, or there was the American Car College of Cardiology, either one came out with a, a course and a certificational process whereby anybody could uh, be have this diploma that says, I know how to read EKGs. Uh, I thought at the time, actually, that it was probably a good idea because my sense is that the education in reading EKGs is all over the dartboard in terms of the of residencies about how thoroughly people know what kind of level of experience they have in reading EKGs. I think it's very variable. There's no course that can person take except what you do for sure in terms of being really good at reading EKGs. Yeah, I, I, I remember that uh, period of time very, very well where the ACC came out and they said, hey, you know, if if you want to bill for this, Here's a test that you can take, which, by the way, costs several hundred dollars to take. Mm -hmm. And there is here's some preparation material that you can prepare for this course, which we sell, which, by the way, costs several hundred dollars. And mm -hmm. it was a big money making thing. And and they submitted the proposal to SAM 
and SAM just flat out rejected it. And it, it it went away pretty quickly. Bill Brady and I actually had written an editorial about that course, just attesting to how many EKGs an emergency medicine resident reads during the course of their residency and somewhat comparing it to a medicine resident who's now in a fellowship. Because there were some other articles that came out saying that all of these EKGs should be overread. Any emergency EKG should be overread by cardiology fellow. So, you know, they were trying to say that maybe the fellows were better than the ED attendings. And when you actually look at the literature comparing how good emergency physicians are at reading STEMIs, sensitivity and specificity, so they throw some mimics in these studies also, and compare them to the cardiologists, what we find is that the accuracy in terms of sensitivity and specificity at picking up the STEMIs and also picking up the mimics is not related to which specialty you're in, but the accuracy is related to how many years out of residency you are, how, how experienced you are, not the specialty. Yeah. And, 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 by the, and by the way, whenever these discussions take place, well, you really need to have a neuro-ophthalmologist look at their brainstem. You're talking about the 3% or 2% of the hospitals in the United States. I mean, it's always great when they say, well, the, my, my fellow will be down to read this or that. Not only aren't they better, but if you're in the middle of, uh, of uh, Montana and you think you're getting a cardiology fellow down to read the, read the tracing, that's just crap. I, I would think that where we are now at the excellence of a lot of the readings, which are built into the machines, as long as it alerts you to a possibility See, what I don't want it doing is saying, well, it's normal, 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 uh, and then missing a bunch. But if it's sensitive enough to pick up some of these areas, then the ER doc has to be able to put that in context in some way. And really, that's what a cardiologist or a cardiology fellow would do. This is what I see, or see in this squiggle. You have to relate it to what the patient said. Uh, it's it's not simple. Oh, by the way, while we have you here, Amal, you're the big uh, you're with hypersensitive tropins and all that sort of thing. Where are we with that now as being considered the standard of care in uh, taking care of patients? Well, it's a good segue to talk about low risk chest pain. Uh, so the most highly sensitive uh, troponins, uh, I would say, are not standard of care yet. I think that they are coming despite uh, many of us not really being thrilled about that, but but there are, it's on a train and it's heading to an ER near you. So yes. um, I, I think that um, the most highly sensitive troponins are also most highly um, nonspecific, and that's the reason that we don't like them. They're elevated in a lot of people that don't have acute coronary syndrome. And um, I, I think my fear with these highly sensitive troponins, if they're if they're negative, then you can rule out the infarction faster. But if they're positive, then you don't really know for sure that it's true ACS because there's so many other non-ruptured plaque thrombosis type of causes of elevated troponins as well. So I, my, my guess is that we're just going to have more patients boarding in the emergency department waiting for the second and third troponin to see if it's rising. Okay. Amo, you had a uh, – well, do you have any more cases that you wanted to do before we get to the uh, 
ASAP guideline? Um, just just some general points. You know, I'm still seeing on a lot of these cases inadequate documentation of consultation. So, for example, you call up the cardiologist and there's some type of nondescript discussion that goes on and you think cardiology is going to come down and see them, but nothing was ever documented. Or on the other hand, cardiology says, well, I didn't know the patient was still having chest pain. You never told me that. Or yeah. I didn't know that the first troponin was slightly elevated. And and what ends up happening is, of course, the patient ends up with an adverse <clears throat> outcome. And then there's a debate about what actually was said during the conversation. And the emergency physician was under the impression that cardiology is going to be coming right in to see the patient come in from home. And that doesn't happen for eight hours. The cardiologist says, well, I would have come in if you had told me the patient was still actively having pain or if you had told me that the EKG showed this or that. And I think a lot of that could be prevented by just improved documumentation of what is said during the consultation or the key features. You know, by, the, by the way, this has been going on in history. Um, Imhotep was the vizier of the uh, uh, in Egypt uh, in 2700 BCE, and I think he wrote a something that said, "God, I talked to the cardiologist," <laughs> and and he said he said as soon as the ceremony is done at the pyramid, he was coming right in. I think that's a big lie. They always tell these stories. So what what I counsel residents and things like that to do is a number one. Don't say you consulted cardiology. You consulted Dr. Smith of cardiology. So there isn't this fight. We had a case one time over at the University of Michigan where somebody had written down, talk to ortho resident. Well, there are 18 ortho residents. Do you think two years later, any of them remember that stuff? Of course not. So it's good to be specific. The other thing is at the end of whatever it is, this is what we're going to do specifically. See, it, there's subjective and objective. I don't want a subjective impression of whether he's coming in. It's yes or no. Uh, will you be here in an hour? Uh, if the patient has uh, elevated ST uh, uh, segments and is sweating and diaphoretic and getting a funky pulse, I don't want, well, I may be in in eight hours. We can't live with that because if he's not coming in, we need somebody who will come in. And I, I think that uh, when you write a note, just understand you may need it someday to defend what you did. Again, just like we did with the against medical advice people, if it was your father laying there on the table, what kind of conversation would you have had with the uh, cardiologist at that moment in time? Yeah, that's a, a great point. So don't just document cardiology consulted or neurology consulted or whoever, but what what's the plan um, and when are they coming in? To, I think that's a great point. You know, it's interesting that uh, when you look at CMS uh, documentation guidelines, um, they basically say that when you write down uh, cardiology consulted, that that is an inadequate uh, note in that regard. It will not count as in terms of your documentation. The same thing is true with regarding talking to the family family physician or, as an example, reviewing the medical record. You can't say reviewed medical record. You have to say reviewed medical record and 
uh, coronary bypass was done. You have to summarize what you found uh, in these notes. That little phrase, cons reviewed medical records, is not really uh, adequate. Sure. And then the last thing that I, I've seen a handful of cases of within the past two years before we get on to the ASAP clinical policy is who's responsible for boarding patients. So in, in a few of these cases, patient is admitted, but maybe there's not admission orders on the chart yet. Uh, I spoke with the hospitalist, hospital plans to admit, and now the emergency physician in their mind is done with the patient. And then it's really unclear about what happens when uh, some tests start rolling back. Maybe the patient got a CAT scan. Maybe the patient's got a troponin that came back that really nobody checked on. Maybe there was supposed to be another EKG that nobody really followed up on. And from the hospitalist standpoint, they might not even be in the hospital. I don't know why they're called a hospital if they're not in the hospital, but they may be busy seeing other patients and they haven't even seen the patient yet. And in the mind of the emergency physician, well, I spoke with the hospitalist. They said they're admitting, so they're not really thinking about this patient any longer. They're taking care of the other 50 that are rolling in. Yes, so, exactly. So, um, yeah. we, we often don't get a, a clear view of what's happening upstairs in the ICUs and things like that. If they tell me, you know, we got a problem here. I've got five patients backed up. Can you start some of this stuff? I'll do it. I'll do what I have to do for that patient. But don't let them get lost in that journey somewhere between the ER and, you know, actually getting put to bed upstairs with orders written, because that can take a long time in some places. And I've, I've watched plaintiff's attorneys go right through the time, right with the juries and say, OK, we're going to sit here for the 42 minutes uh, that it took them. He was in a hallway waiting to be shuffled upstairs. Uh, make sure you actually know what's going to happen to the patients because it, it isn't good. This comes up all the time, though, the ownership of the patient, uh, the pass on. And uh, I think one of the things that can be helpful, frankly, is to when there is a lab test that comes back or something to that effect. And that patient's kind of hanging around there. Yeah, you're not going to let anything nasty happen. But I do think the nurses ought to call hospitals and say your your patient has uh, his blood test is back or your patient's chest x-ray is back just to make it really clear that this is their patient and it is in the department and we're kind of holding them for you but you're still re you're, re you're responsible yes you're not going to let anything happen nasty to them you're going to go in if they get hypotensive or anything like that i mean sure. because a jury's going to say jesus the person was right in front of you and you didn't do anything because it was on somebody else's service that that's not going to work well, the yeah. other thing, too, is the bigger the medical center and the bigger the name, the more chances you have of screwing up. You know, in, in, in some uh, small ER in the middle of Michigan, there ain't that much going on. You know, they do call you with the lab results. The radiologist may call you. Somebody may call you. It's not this huge uh, machine where things get lost or fall out or move to the side, that sort of stuff. Uh, we should be at this point in time making sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen. It's sure. it, it's really not right. Uh, by the way, Amal, you asked us um, by way of your email, is it now the standard of care to know uh, to use a bedside ultrasound? 
That is a hugely difficult question because of a specialty which has exploded. Uh, Rick and I, uh, you won't remember this, but Rick and I were members of uh, ASAP before we were an accepted medical specialty. That didn't take place till about 1980. Some of these standard of care questions have changed so much just in the last five years. Uh, the use of ultrasound in everything, finding veins that are difficult, central lines, looking at abscesses, looking for foreign bodies. I can't say right now that it's standard of care everywhere, but there's certainly a movement, a push, a thrust that everybody who gets out of the residency, you know, and maybe there's a half a dozen things they should be able to do with it. But you ought to be able to put the ultrasound on the chest and know whether there's any cardiac activity. Uh, is it? I, I, I'm serious about mm -hmm. that. It, 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 do, they, do they have a big bag of fluid and maybe a little motion of the ventricle? Who knows? But if you can't do a few things like that, we're moving in the direction of that becoming standard of care. Well, we know that uh, central lines done <clears throat> with the uh, ultrasound are safer than those that are not. Uh, is that standard of care? Uh, I don't think so, frankly, because um, there are a generation of doctors who don't really know how to do ultrasound and who don't know how to do it reliably. So, I think it would be prudent if you were in a hospital that had a radiologist there that uh, maybe they could come in and do a ultrasound guided central line uh, versus you because we just know it's better. Uh, what would you like? What would your what would you like for your family? So uh, I think that if it's available, I think that it, it would be maybe prudent to ask for it. Maybe somebody can do come down uh, and help you out there. Uh, but I don't think it's the standard of care. I think that it would be hard to get somebody to say that it is the standard of care. Um, yes, is, is it a safer technique? Yes. Uh, were you trained to do this? No. Um, wh wh how are you going to deal with that? In, in, in the huge number of emergency departments where the ER doctors alone, there's only one per person in the department, is that doctor. He Yes, he was board certified, but at that time, that was not part of the... Uh, a standard training. Sure. Yeah, if I was plaintiff's counsel, I would take the four emails I got today on ultrasound courses being given by, well, yeah, there are major groups around this country who are putting on three and four day seminars to bring people up to date. I'm not talking about the guy who graduated two years ago and carries an ultrasound machine with him, you know, so he's got it all the time. What we have with us we get good with. I mean, the residents today don't have stethoscopes anymore. Why? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, would, what would they do with it? It just shows it's Dr. Jewelry at this point. It shows check reflexes. They, yeah, yeah, check reflexes because <laughs> you forgot the hammer, of course. <laughs> and you, you haven't carried that for years either. And, uh, it, but it is one of those things which is a, a constantly changing sea, I think. And it would be unusual at your hospital uh, to be a practicing attending and not have pretty good ultrasound skills at this point since you have to train residents every day. Hey guys, if I can uh, uh, chime in here, I'm watching the clock and I really wanna leave, 
enough time to address a couple of more of these uh, issues because I, I, I do see this. I didn't even know the college addressed this because this is a really natty question. Yeah. Go ahead and read the uh, read Amo, the did, you, did you want to do any others before we got there? We have enough time if there's. Yeah, no, I got time also. Let's let's do the uh, clinical policy on, on low-risk chest pain. Well, this policy, it, I, it is dated 2018. I don't know the don't don't know the month, but probably no November. So it's very recent. Well, what they do in the ACE of clinical policies is they basically address certain very specific questions. They don't take it a, uh, soup to nuts and talk about here's what we think about uh, chest pain or something to that effect. In this case, the policy relates to uh, critical issues in the evaluation of and management of emergency department patients with suspected non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome. So they addressed only three questions, but the third question is the is the big guy. It says, um, okay, yeah, in adults with suspected acute non-ST elevation cardiac syndrome in whom acute myocardial infarction has been excluded, does further diagnostic testing, for example, provocative stress test, CT angiogram for acute coronary syndrome prior to discharge, reduce 30-day adverse uh, risk. And they have some answers here, and they're rated by the level of confidence. So they have a level B recommendation. Catch this. Do not routinely use further diagnostic testing, coronary CT angiogram, stress testing, myocardial perfusion imaging, et cetera, et cetera. In low-risk patients in whom acute myocardial infarction has been ruled out, to reduce 30-day uh, major adverse coronary events. So that it says, do not routinely um, use these things. It doesn't have put a time frame on it. Level C recommendation says, arrange follow-up in one to two weeks for low-risk chest pain patients in whom myocardial infarction has been ruled out. If no follow-up is available, consider further testing or observation prior to discharge. And that's the consensus recommendation. Man, I'm really curious as to what you think, Amo. Well, I think we've really been heading in this direction for quite some time. And there's been increasing literature coming out saying that if somebody is low risk, and, and generally low risk is defined as if somebody has a risk of an adverse outcome within a month of less than 2%. So if somebody's low risk, then you actually might be inducing more harm than benefit by mandating that they get a provocative test or coronary CTA. Now, why would that be? Well, I think one thing that we really haven't been talked to or taught in all these years that we've been told stress test is great is that stress tests have only about, on average, an 80% specificity, which means there's a lot of false positives. So what happens if you have a false positive stress test? Well, false positive stress test means you go for an unnecessary cath and maybe an unnecessary stent. The data has backed that up. And also, there is a false positivity to cath. And what happens if you have a false positive cath? You go for an unnecessary bypass and deal with all of the complications for that. So putting the numbers into this equation, what the data seems to say is that if your risk of ACS is less than 2%, you're more likely to have a false positive stress test than a true positive stress test. 
And so that's where this 2% number comes from. And so they say that if you have less than a 2% risk, they don't say it's not necessary. They say do not send the patient for provocative testing. And they talk about the fact that you may be inducing more harm than benefit by routinely sending these patients for uh, for stress test, and instead just have them follow up in the next one to two weeks for 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 the risk stratification, and also most importantly, really really try to get that patient into risk factor modification. Try to get them into a smoking cessation program, uh, get them dietary counseling, get them on a statin. You know, do whatever you can to drop their current risk factors. But I, but I, if you're talking about diet and smoking and those kinds of things, are you implying that this may, I want to know the question, doctor, do I have coronary artery disease? I don't really care what uh, that I'm not going to have any event in the next 30 days. I want to know whether I have a underlying pathology here. And you're talking as if I do have underlying pathology. You're saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. The other thing is you said is, well, go ch get checked out in a week or two. Well, what is that doctor going to do in a week or two? Is he going to do any of these tests or not? There's a big problem here because there are so many people involved and making money. There's more people making money off stress tests than dying of coronary disease. And so what you what as soon as you decide, well, everybody's going to get a coronary stress test, it's a test which is looking for an illness at this point in time. But you ought to be question. able to... Yeah, well, you make the Do decision with another test. Do I have coronary artery disease, doctor? Well, you're not going to decide it with a stress test. We have functional tests. We have anatomic tests. Help me out here, doctor. You you basically, you're talking to me as if I have coronary disease, but you don't know that. Well, the risk factors that we talked about are going to put you at risk for developing coronary disease. So, that, so if nothing else, by getting you to decrease your risk factors, getting rid of your risk factors, smoking, hypertension, everything else, that's going to decrease the risk of you going on to develop cardiac disease. So if, if the question is, do you have cardiac disease? Do you have atherosclerotic disease right now? Yes. What I would say is every one of us has atherosclerotic disease. I think from the day you're born, you have clean coronaries, and every day you live in this Western society after that, you are developing atherosclerosis. But did that, <laughs> but that atherosclerosis cause my visit today that uh, frightened me so that I really decided to come into the emergency department, which nobody wants to do voluntarily. Would, um, so give me some confidence, doctor, that I don't I, – yeah, I know I'm not going to drop dead 2% within – 30 days, but I'm not interested in 30 days. I'm interested in six months, one year. And uh, do I have coronary artery disease or, or don't I? Well, if you, if you really want to know that, what you can do is a coronary CTA. Coronary CTA will better define whether there's atherosclerosis, yes or no. Problem with that, with coronary CTA, again, is it overestimates the lesions and is more likely to give you a false positive result if your risk is really low than a true positive. Um, so what what we're doing here is we're, we're not answering the question yes or no, we're risk stratifying whether you are at risk for having problems from atherosclerotic disease. And uh, again, the, the, the risk stratification that is consistently endorsed is the heart score. And the convenience of the heart score is that if you have a heart score of three or less, 
magically you have less than a 2% risk of at, adverse outcome. At 30 days. At 30 days, correct. At 30 days. And uh, have you seen the NICE guidelines, the recent adoption of the NICE guidelines for chest pain? You know, that's the stuff that the Brits do. Um, they they basically were, uh, frankly, endorsing CT uh, coronary angiograms as a um, as the initial kind of thing to do. Yeah, this is. I find this this is a. I find this to be difficult because it doesn't answer the question. Was my chest pain due due to coronary artery disease today? Yeah, was that the first episode of angina that I'm going to have, or that I have? I don't think that the, this policy really addresses that. I understand what you're saying in terms of downstream risks and those kinds of things, but um, when you're talking about treadmills, I don't think anybody's talking about it. You know, one of these two-step treadmill kind of things anymore. I think there's this issue about perfusion and thallium and those kinds of things. Um, and those are, are those are exactly the ones that have that 80% specificity. And and so the the key question that you would have to ask answer is what do you want the risk to be? If you want the risk to be zero, then that's not possible. I think we as a society have to accept and get comfortable with that we will never be able to risk stratify people to zero. It's impossible. You can admit everybody who's got chest pain, and you're going to miss no. all the non-chest pain. Um, and and again, do you want to do more benefit or harm uh, in this in this uh, unending search for cardiac disease? And when the risk is low, you need to understand that you are going to induce more harm to your patients than benefit by working up patients that have very low risk. But uh, listening to the two of you, Amal, understand what he is asking is something that none of us have solved, and that is a room full of smart guys who've studied this their entire life cannot agree. So now you've got Mr. Jones in there, 68, grandfather, that sort of, he's the guy who also wants a Z-pack on the way out for the cold that he's got. If you think the average American is going to understand the discussion of risk stratification. I, I think I think all of us would like to think we can have that intelligent discussion. Oh my God, that kind of discussion is so hard in an emergency department with our population. This and recent plan. literature has actually shown that uh, MIs, there's a correlation between MIs and recent URIs and Zithromax use, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Zithromax is a cardiotoxic drug. There's no question. Did you see that paper? It, it yes. 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 You know, yeah. well, the other thing is now, doctor, if I have coronary artery disease, but you really don't know that, and you're going to tell me not to eat fat, fat anymore, should I be taking a daily uh, aspirin? And should I not be on a, a statin, independent of what my cholesterol is, should I not be on a statin uh, if I have coronary artery disease? Well, Rick, those are good questions. And not being a primary care physician myself, I, I would have to defer that to my wife, who is a primary care physician. Um, <laughs> and she's going to say yes. I don't honestly know the answer to that in terms of what's best going to help the patients. Well, by the way, while we're on this issue, uh, and we I threw in the question of the ZPAC, uh, just to let our listeners know, 
that the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration has again found another problem with fluoroquinolones and that if there's a reason you should be using that as your antibiotic on this patient, it's not just the fact that you snap tendons, it's all of your connective tissue, and they claim there's adequate data to say that we put you on a fluoroquinone if you have a tendency toward having a dissecting aorta, it actually promotes aortic dissection. Yeah, the risk is, risk is double. That's, that's the worst way to say it. It's twice as high, except yeah. <laughs> the incidence is eight per 100,000 or something like that. It's really between eight to 300. If you're a high-risk patient, you're at 300 per year per 100,000 or something like that. So, yeah, the risk, risk doubles. Plus, they also talked about hypoglycemia with that drug, plus everything ruptures. Yes, exactly. And as I as as I went through this stuff, your, I'm shoe, your shoelace is going to rupture and prolong QT. So you develop torsade before your aorta <laughs> ruptures. Right, right. Your torsade de exactly. Right. Are, are they still treating uh, torsades with uh, sodium bicarb now, or what are they doing with torsades these days? I'd go right to shock. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen, you guys, we are uh, running out of time here. If you uh, want to do some wine, Gregory. Uh, I think we're Are we that far down. We, we just went through it, man. We it was just such fun. I know we haven't. I've got a zillion things left to talk about, but next, uh, month, next month. Okay. We'll All right. Next month. Next month. Uh, this is for the connoisseurs who are listening. Now, I don't usually do this because I've been perverted by both Rick and uh, Mel <laughs> before him into coming up with cheap wine. The well, twist off top bottles. Uh, well, uh, be careful now. There's a lot of good <laughs> new wines coming out with with uh, twist tops. But I have been invited next month. I'm going to be speaking for an emergency group in Santa Monica, and it's uh, uh, you, you know these people, Rick, uh, Dr. Weiss, Dr. Gre Vince Green, that sort yep. of thing. Mm -hmm. But we're having a dinner uh, at, at which I have been invited. And they are cracking open four bottles of the best wines of the world. A, a, a 1990 Houbrion Magnum, a uh, La Misson uh, Houbrion Magnum, 1990, a La Tour Magnum, 1990. I mean, these are the great wines of the world. So if any of you want, want this list of uh, what I consider to be fabulous wines. I'll go to that dinner. I'm going to teach the residents earlier in the day uh, or the uh, young attendings uh, and enjoy this. And uh, so uh, all of you uh, wish me luck at this dinner. It should be fantastic. Is it available at Costco, though? It's not available at Costco. <laughs> then I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I understand that, Rick. Okay. Amal, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, no, thank this. you. We, thank you very much. We always enjoy it when you're uh, with us. And provocative business here, provocative business. I really yeah. uh, I really wrestle with this. Uh, doctor, do I have coronary artery disease? <laughs> I just, I don't know how to deal with it. Yes. But anyway, I do thank you for your time. Greg, uh, I think uh, we'll be picking up some of these cases. We have a fabulous case, fabulous paper for next month. It's about culpable sleep deprivation, culpable sleep deprivation. You want to talk about a, 
nobody knows about this. this is the first paper ever on this issue in terms of a clinical study. The results are dramatic. So this is yeah. coming attractions. All right. So for Amal and Rick and myself, so long. This is February 2019. Take care. Thanks very much.